Hi everybody. I'm so sorry that we can't meet together in person today. Uh, this is my last Sunday before I go on leave on Friday and I was hoping to wish you all a blessed Christmas in person uh, and to see you and catch up with you. But I am glad that we can meet in this way. Traditionally, the third Sunday in Advent focuses on John the Baptist, an often overlooked character in the Christmas story. Usually at Christmas time, we read the account of that first Christmas in the Gospel of Luke, and we jump straight to the birth of Jesus. And we often skip out the first part of Luke chapter 1, which tells us about the birth of John the Baptist. Some of you will know that the writer of our third gospel, Luke, was actually a medical doctor, and so it's very natural for a doctor to begin his gospel with the accounts of two different births, John the Baptist first, and then the account of Jesus' birth. And maybe Luke was an obstetrician. So we'll start with John's birth today, and then I'll go on from there just to tell something of the story of John's life, focusing in on four episodes, we're not going to be reading one particular passage of Scripture today or trying to have three neat points because you can't reduce someone's life into points. That's not how narrative is supposed to work. I think we're supposed to look at John's story and be challenged by it and see what parts of his story match our story or rather what parts of our story should match up or be changed in the light of his story. As I said, we'll consider the main incidents in the life of John, but it might be helpful if you opened your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, because that's where we're going to start with John's birth. The setting for John's story is found in Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, where Luke tells us that all these things took place in the time of Herod, king of Judea, which was a fairly bleak time in the history of Israel. Herod wasn't a true Jewish man. He was from Idumea, although he claimed to belong to the Jewish religion. He's often called Herod the Great, mainly because of his building program. He's the one who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. But Herod also went on and built a lot of other temples to foreign gods. He had several wives during his lifetime, some of whom he divorced and one whom he executed. He also executed two of his sons at a fairly young age because he thought that they were plotting against him. It's this same Herod who orders the death of all of the babies in Bethlehem who were two years old and younger in an attempt to get rid of Jesus, who is the king of the Jews. But in this gloomy time, there is a ray of light as we're introduced to two people, a man called Zechariah, whose name means God has remembered, and his wife, Elizabeth, whose name means my God is an oath, or God is the absolutely faithful one. Sadly, this couple have a secret sorrow in that we read in verses 6 and 7, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. You know, it's not often in the Bible that we read about someone's character. The Bible doesn't often say, this person was like this. Usually we get to know what someone is like from his or her actions. And so when we get a description like this in verse 6, we need to sit up and listen, 
The Bible tells us explicitly that Zechariah and Elizabeth were upright in God's sight. And that's important because it means that this tragedy of childlessness is not due to any sin or fault on their part. And that's an important point. Sometimes when we're in trouble, the very first thing we ask is, what have I done to deserve this? And often the answer is simply nothing. Sometimes the things that we experience in life are the consequences of the wrong choices that we make. But not all bad things that happen to us are due to sin. And we can see that clearly in the life of this elderly couple. They're upright in the sight of God, and yet they have this personal heartache. But actually, there is a greater tragedy in this story beyond the personal tragedy of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and that is a national tragedy. The national tragedy was this, that for about 400 years, God had not spoken to the nation of Israel. You see, between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, there was a period of about 400 years where no prophet got up and said, Thus saith the Lord. No priest said, I have a word from God. There was dead quiet from God's side. And all this time, there was this expectation in Israel that one day God would come through for his people. One day the Messiah would come. And people were praying that this would happen soon. And in fact, it's in the temple that our story begins. And it's probably with this kind of prayer that our story begins. Because we begin with Zechariah in the temple, having just gone in to say prayers. In verses 9 and 10, we read that when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. This was actually the high point in Zechariah's life. You see, it was only once in your lifetime as a priest that you got to go into the holy place and offer incense. And so this is Zechariah's big moment. But his big moment got to be an even bigger moment than he imagined. Zechariah thought that he was by himself in this dimly lit temple, but suddenly he turns around and there's an angel standing there. And we read in verse 12 that when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel tells Zechariah not to be frightened. Easy for him to say. He's an angel. The angel says that Zechariah's prayer has been heard. Now, when we read that, we often think that the prayer that is heard is Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer for a child. But when you think about it, they'd probably given up praying for a child. We're told that they are old and past the age of bearing children. And so they've probably stopped that kind of praying. No, the prayer that has been heard is the prayer that Zechariah has just prayed in the temple, asking that would God would come and save Israel. It's the prayer that all the worshippers are praying outside the temple, asking for God to send the Messiah. It's that prayer that has been heard. The angel comes and says, God has heard your prayer for the Messiah, and I've got good news for you. The Messiah is coming, and you're going to have a part to play in that event. And in fact, it all works out wonderfully because Zechariah's own personal wish and his prayer for the salvation of Israel are going to come together. The angel says, you're going to have a son who is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Verses 15 to 18. He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. 
Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord to make a way ready and a people prepared for the Lord. And of course, Zechariah is thrilled. He has absolute confidence in the angel. He believes every word, and he rushes home to tell his wife the good news. No, he doesn't, does he? His immediate response is one of doubt. Look at what he says in verse 18. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And I love this next part, because it's almost as if Gabriel can't believe his ears. Here he is, an angel of the Most High God. He sees God as he is. He worships before him day and night. He's already amazed that God would even bother to come and visit this miserable planet called Earth. And here is this little human being saying, well, I don't know if I can really believe you or not. Look at what Gabriel says in verse 19. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, though, we are told that all the people are standing around waiting outside, wondering why the morning service is going on so long and wishing that Zachariah would hurry up and come out so they can go off to their Sabbath afternoon lunch. And eventually Zachariah does come out. Normally, when he came out of the temple, he would bless the people and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. But now as Zachariah comes from the temple, he stands in front of the people and he says, and in fact, for the next nine months, all that Zachariah can do is stand there and say, uh, and the people realize that something very strange has happened. What do we learn from this part of the life of John the Baptist? Does this story mean that God will always answer the prayers of childless couples? Does it mean that God will always answer all of our prayers? No, that's not the main point of this section. I don't know why sometimes God answers prayers and sometimes he seemingly doesn't. We aren't told in this passage why bad things happen to good people like Zachariah and Elizabeth. We live in a fallen sinful world where things don't work the way they were intended to work. And I don't know why God doesn't step in and sort everything out immediately. No, sometimes bad things do happen. Zachariah and Elizabeth have a child while many mothers in Bethlehem lose their children when Herod kills them. No, the main focus of this account has to do with what God is doing. God is busy working out his plan and purpose for the nation of Israel, his purpose, in fact, for the whole world. The plan to bless the nation of Israel and through that nation to bring his Messiah, who would be the saviour of the world. And nothing is going to stop that plan. It's not going to be frustrated by a godless king who claims to be a follower of the Jewish God. It's not going to be frustrated by the fact that Zechariah and Elizabeth can't have children. It's not going to be frustrated by the fact that Zechariah doesn't believe that it can happen. God is still working his plan out. And that's an encouraging message for us as well this morning. Sometimes we can become frustrated in thinking about God's plan We've been studying the book of Revelation, and sometimes we think, is this all true? Is there really going to be a new world with no more sin and no more grief? Will God's purposes work out? Yes, 
despite the difficulties that we see in our world, despite the difficulties that we see in our nation, despite the difficulties that we see in our own lives, God is working his purposes out for our world. And one day, the longing that we have to see Jesus face to face will be met. I think we also learn from this passage that God can be trusted. God's word can be trusted. In verse 24, we simply read, after this, Zachariah's wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant. And in verse 57, we read that she had a baby, a boy, just as God had promised. God's word can be trusted. God's word about our world can be trusted. God's word about his second coming can be trusted. And God's word in our own personal lives can be trusted as well. Words like, I will never leave you nor forsake you, can be trusted. Well, let's move ahead a bit to nine months later when baby John is actually born, because it was only at this point that all of the angel's words come true. You see, there were no ultrasounds in those days. The only time when Zechariah and Elizabeth knew for certain that all of God's word had come completely true was when they saw that it was a baby boy. When it comes time to circumcise the baby and the priest is about to name the baby Zachariah after his father, but Elizabeth speaks up and says, no, he is to be called John. And they say to her, but none of your relatives are called John. And so they ask Zachariah, what are you going to call the child? And Zachariah takes out the little chalkboard that he has been using for the last nine months and he writes there, his name is John. And immediately his mouth is opened and he can speak. And although Zechariah must have been the proudest father in all of Israel, his first words aren't directed to the baby or to his wife. They're directed to God. Verse 68, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. God's word has come true, and this means that the Messiah is going to come, and the Messiah is going to save Israel from their sins. And then in verse 76, Zechariah addresses baby John and he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Let's move forward a few years, about 30 years, in fact, after John's birth, where we see him at the River Jordan urging people to repent of their sins. In Matthew chapter 3, we read that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Matthew goes on to explain to us, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That was John's mission, to prepare people for the time when Jesus himself would start his ministry. John is known as John the Baptist, not because he was the first Baptist, but rather because of the fact that he baptized people. His baptism wasn't quite the same as our Christian baptism, where we identified the death and the resurrection of Jesus. John didn't know anything about that. His baptism was simply an outward sign of the fact that people had repented of their sins. And while John placed a great deal of emphasis on baptism, he was far more concerned about people's inward lives than he was about the outward form of baptism. In verse 8 of Matthew 3, he says to the crowds, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
He was saying it's not whether you get pushed under the water that counts, it's whether or not you live a life that is different that counts. We read in John chapter 1 how Jesus also came to be baptized by John, not because Jesus had any sin to confess, but simply so that he would identify with us as human beings. When John sees Jesus, he says to the crowd, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, he's fulfilling his mission of pointing people to Jesus. And we'll talk about that again in a few moments. It's also interesting to see how John described Jesus' first coming in this chapter. If you have a look a little bit further in Matthew chapter 3, we read that John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Those aren't particularly comfortable words, are they? But it's interesting that when Jesus came the first time, his ministry wasn't quite like that. We don't see Jesus burning unbelievers with unquenchable fire. And in fact, so concerned is John about this that at one point he even has doubts as to whether Jesus really is the Messiah or not. If you have a look in Matthew chapter 10, there you will see that John is in jail for preaching out against King Herod Antipas. And he sends some disciples to ask Jesus if he really is the Messiah. I find that quite comforting to see that even someone like John the Baptist, who'd seen Jesus face to face and had even seen the Holy Spirit come on Jesus in the form of a dove at his baptism, even he had dark days when he doubted. That's very encouraging to me. Jesus has to send these disciples back to John to say, well, it's not quite how you expected it would be, but look at what is happening. The blind see, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Although Jesus' first coming was not with the fire that John expected, his second coming will be. If you have a look at Second Peter chapter 3, there we read, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And in view of that, you and I have the same responsibility that John had. We have to warn people and prepare people for Jesus' return. It's interesting that at one point Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, among those born of woman there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Why is that the case? Well, because of the fact that we know more than John did. John never saw Jesus on the cross. He never saw the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He didn't understand all that we understand about God's plan to save the world. And therefore, in fact, you and I have a greater responsibility to prepare people for Jesus' second coming, to tell them the good news that not even John the Baptist understood fully. What happened to John the Baptist after Jesus started his ministry? Well, there's a very horrific part to John's story in Mark chapter 6. 
You see, John didn't have any problem urging everyone to repent. He even told Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, to repent. This is a different Herod to Herod the Great. John the Baptist told Herod Antipas that it wasn't lawful for him to marry his brother's wife. You see, what had happened was that Herod had gone around to his brother Philip's house, and Herod and Herodias, Philip's wife, had seen each other and become infatuated with each other. Both of them decided just to leave their husband and wife and go off together. Herod divorced his wife, and Herodias took her daughter Salome and went and moved into Herod's palace. It was a very sordid affair. And John the Baptist had the courage to stand up and say to this powerful man, that's wrong, you can't do that. I wonder if we have the courage to do things like that, to proclaim God's word even when it's tough. John wasn't being awkward here. He wasn't saying, well, my life is sorted out and yours isn't. I'm better than you because I have higher morals than you. No, he was just declaring God's word and telling Herod and Herodias that God's way is best. But Herod realized that if such an influential person like John the Baptist was going to stand up and tell everyone that what he was doing was wrong, then that would undermine his authority. And so he arrested John. He probably was also suffering from a guilty conscience. Herod intended just to keep John in jail. He didn't want to kill him, probably because of fear of the people, and also due to a certain respect that he had for John. However, Herodias, his new wife, held a bitter grudge against John. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. On Herod's next birthday, he held a huge banquet for hundreds of guests, and part of the evening's entertainment was having Salome, his new daughter, come and dance for him. I told you this was a sordid story. We are told that the girl pleased Herod and his guests so much that he said to her, Ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you, even up to half my kingdom. Salome was a little bit confused as to what she should ask for, and so she went to her mother to ask for her advice. And Herodias says to Salome, tell him that you would like the head of John the Baptist right now on a platter. I'm fairly sure that that's not what Salome would have chosen for herself. But she went to Herod and told him this. Herod is there with all of his military commanders and all the leading men of Galilee having a good time, and Salome comes up to him with this request, and he must have choked on his drink. He knew who had put her up to this. But all of his friends are around him, and he didn't feel that he could lose face in front of them all, and so he gets his executioner to go down to the dungeon and cut John's head off and bring the head on a plate to Salome, who then goes and gives it to her mother. John paid a great price for preaching God's word faithfully. At the moment in our country, we are a long way away from having to be martyrs for the sake of the gospel. But I wonder if we are prepared to be faithful to God's word no matter what. If we're prepared to be obedient to God's word in our own lives, in the life of our family, at school and work. Are we prepared to obey God, even when it's difficult, even when it costs? And are we prepared to boldly and loudly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, 
doing it with respect, always being prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have, respectfully and gently, but nonetheless, boldly and often. Then there's just one final episode in John's life that I want to mention just before we close. It's an episode that happened just shortly before his death in John chapter 3. As we've seen, John's whole ministry was to prepare people for Jesus' coming. John's mission was to get people to follow Jesus. And there came a time when that started to happen. Some people who'd been baptized by John stayed with him and became his disciples. They wanted to learn a bit more from John. But after a while, more and more people started following Jesus. And at one point, there came a time when John and his disciples were baptizing people in one river, and down the road, Jesus and his disciples were baptizing other people in another river. And there is a wonderful account of this in John chapter 3. John's disciples come to him and say to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And John says something very wonderful in response to them. He says in verse 27, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Isn't that amazing? He must become greater. I must become less. John was a big man. As we've seen, Jesus said that there wasn't anyone else who was born of woman who was greater than John the Baptist. It takes a big man to gather a whole lot of people around him and follow him, but it takes an even bigger man to then give them up and to send them off after someone else. And that's precisely what John did. This is a most important passage for anyone who is involved in Christian work, especially those of us who are involved in any type of full-time service. There is a great amount of joy in serving Jesus. I thoroughly enjoy preparing sermons and teaching and visiting, and it's nice when people grow and are encouraged through that work, but we must always be careful that we do what John the Baptist did and point people to Jesus and not to ourselves. John, in his ministry, acted as a floodlight and not a Christmas light. At the moment, you'll see many different houses that are decorated with Christmas lights. They even advertise and say, come and look at our Christmas lights. And people do that on a Friday evening. They get in the car and they drive around and they go and look at the Christmas lights. The whole point of Christmas lights is to be seen. A floodlight is very different though. I remember when we first moved to Cape Town for the first couple of years at this time of year, there would be these huge floodlights that lit up Table Mountain. I see that they've stopped doing that the last couple of years, probably due to budget constraints. Whenever we drove around that section of the road, we would never say, look at those great floodlights. We would always say, wow, look at how beautiful Table Mountain looks. A floodlight doesn't exist for itself. 
it exists to highlight and to show another object. John acted as a floodlight so that people could see Jesus. And the same has to be true of those of us who are involved in Christian ministry, whether that is leading worship or preaching or leading Bible studies or teaching Sunday school. Are we pointing people to Jesus and making them reliant on him or or are we asking people to come and listen to us? This verse also has a more intimate application to our own lives too. He must become greater. I must become less. Remember that in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. True life, life in all its fullness, involves me becoming less and Jesus becoming greater in my life. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, Pastor John Piper says this, It was not always plain to me that pursuing God's glory would be virtually the same as pursuing my joy. Now I see that millions of people waste their lives because they think the paths are two and not one. The way to finding true joy in our so-called lives is allowing Jesus to become greater, pursuing his glory, seeking him first and his kingdom. I heard about a lady who was organising all her Christmas cards and presents, and she went and wrote out cheques to all her family, and then she wrote the cards and wrote at the bottom of each card, buy your own present, and then she sealed up all of the envelopes and posted them off. It was only in about February that next year she discovered a big pile of cheques in a drawer in her desk and realised that she'd forgotten to put them in the envelopes. I hope that your preparations for Christmas are going well. I hope that they are going a lot better than this lady's preparations went. I also pray that your spiritual preparation for Christmas is a lot better than that too. We've just touched the surface of John's life today, but I hope we've seen and learned from the little bit that we've looked at. We've seen that God's promises do come true. He is working his purpose out. He will come again to judge the world. And in the meantime, we need to be preparing people for that coming. We need to prepare them even when it is difficult and even when we might get ourselves into trouble for doing so. And then in preparing the way for Jesus, we need to make sure that people clearly see him and not us. God bless you in this new week that lies ahead.